In year two of the pandemic, cities and counties across the country were handed an extraordinary opportunity. Emergency housing vouchers from the federal government. Voucher holders pay 30% of their income toward a unit they find on the market, and the federal government pays the rest, up to a limit based on what they consider fair market value. These are long-term subsidies. There's no time limit on them so long as the household stays eligible. These vouchers were meant for homeless people, those on the brink of homelessness, and people fleeing domestic violence or human trafficking. All urgent issues. But in tight housing markets, it takes time to get leases signed. The vouchers were released in 2021, but statewide, only a bit more than half are actually in use. But the city of San Diego seems to have something figured out. They've used all of their vouchers. One official says that's because they already had an efficient, collaborative system, and they're pulling out all the stops to get people housed. It isn't something that we did just for EHB. It's our standard practice. I'm Laura Wenis. This week, a San Diego City official and a nonprofit worker explain how that city seized the opportunity to get 500 people who couldn't afford rent into apartments. From the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, this is Fixing Our City. The phrase emergency housing voucher sounds like it might get people into housing fast. But getting the target populations into apartments doesn't happen overnight. San Francisco has used 51% of its more than 900 vouchers. San Diego was issued 480, and they're fully in use. A spokesperson for one of the two agencies handling these vouchers in San Francisco, the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, sent us a statement calling a direct comparison between two cities problematic. The city says it's actually on schedule according to its plan for distributing its vouchers. It's also worth noting that even though San Diego has a bigger population and similar counts of homeless people, San Francisco received about twice as many vouchers. Somehow, though, San Diego has used up more than 100% of its vouchers. How does that happen? I posed this question to Asusena Valadolid from San Diego's Housing Commission. She's the Executive Vice President of Rental Assistance and Workforce Development. So we issued more emergency housing vouchers than what we were allocated. It was a very intentional and strategic move With the population that served under the emergency housing vouchers, we did see a lot of attrition even at the beginning of the program, meaning we issued a voucher to a household. Sometimes it wouldn't follow through all the way and they would return their voucher or they wouldn't utilize it. Because we wanted to expedite the use of the vouchers as quickly as possible, we accounted for that average attrition rate that we were seeing and then we over-issued vouchers. Over the next year, I do anticipate probably falling back down to about 100%, just given the natural occurring of program terminations or attrition. San Francisco did not overextend in this way. The Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing says more than 80% of its vouchers have been issued, though that's different from someone actually renting a unit with one. Department spokesperson Deborah Bauk wrote that the city has been handing these out in a phased approach and focusing on specific target populations for the vouchers. She said the city does expect some attrition and is reissuing the vouchers of people who drop out of the program, but wants to keep the first recipient's housing opportunity available as much as possible. Several major things were happening at once as these vouchers were coming in, according to the city's statement. San Francisco was working on a COVID recovery plan, and that meant moving nearly 2,000 households from shelter-in-place hotels to permanent housing. Then, in 2022, the federal government released a 1,000 more vouchers. 
These were housing choice vouchers, which is a similar concept but has slightly different parameters. Bauk called the multiple programs the largest expansion in supportive housing investment the city has seen in decades. Which also put a strain on the rental market, she says, since thousands of people were now competing with other renters for the same units. San Diego's success has been chalked up to a number of things, outlined in detail by the LA Times. We'll link the article in the podcast description. One major factor seems to be the people helping voucher recipients actually find and lease a unit. This is a really hard thing to do for a variety of reasons, especially in a tight housing market like San Francisco. The target populations for these vouchers often have barriers to getting housing that aren't erased by having the subsidy. They could have poor credit or little to no rental history, debt, or an eviction on the record. It takes a lot of work to help someone with a voucher in hand clear all those hurdles. The people who do that are called housing navigators or housing specialists. I talked about this with Glenn Hilton, director of community care for the San Diego nonprofit PATH, People Assisting the Homeless. He told me people with a variety of different skill sets are showing up of their own accord, wanting to become housing specialists. We generally work in multidisciplinary teams. The housing specialists themselves come from a variety of backgrounds. Some of them have real estate backgrounds. Some of them have property management backgrounds. Some of them have backgrounds working with individuals experiencing homelessness. And so what they do is to really build relationships with landlords to help, you know, we only have so many units in the county and in the city. The key is to activate as many of those units for this population as possible. And so we build relationships, try to help the landlords understand how the voucher system work so that they are more open to the security that comes from knowing that all or a large portion of an individual's rent is already secured. And then we also continue working post-housing to make sure that those individuals are stabilized in that setting. We'll work with them sometimes for up to a year after somebody is housed to make sure that the landlord feels that they have support and that the tenant feels that they're supported as well. In some places, there just aren't enough of these navigators to funnel emergency housing voucher holders, or EHV holders, into apartments. In San Francisco, for example, the city's statement says that major expansion in voucher programs I talked about earlier was being handled by the same staff already working on COVID-related relocations. The question about whether or not other jurisdictions might be sort of overwhelmed with the system and sort of what's working with the navigators or not. I think it's important to really point out that with the EHVs, it was sort of a new program for HUD to issue in to public housing authorities One of the key indicators for why we were so successful is our existing relationship with our local continuum of care and a variety of service providers throughout the city that already serve homeless populations, people with high risk and high needs. So PATH and the Housing Commission have a myriad of different programs and contracts that we work with on an ongoing basis. So it was really easy to tap into our strong relationships with both the COC and our existing service providers in the community to work together and to establish a partnership to serve these EHV households, including the housing navigation. So we hired five full-time housing navigators, but we also contracted with 17 different community service providers that would help, one, identify the household's 
that would qualify for the EHVs. They helped them fill out paperwork. They helped them with the housing navigation search. They helped them, you know, with the leasing and the move-in process and just really providing ongoing case management and supportive services. So I think that culmination of both doing it internally and then contracting out with our already established partnerships really was a huge indicator and a key for the success in this program in San Diego. Housing navigators were also hired for this purpose in San Francisco, though they weren't hired directly by city agencies, but rather only through partner nonprofits. According to an L.A. Times report, in San Francisco, the groups handling different parts of this process are separate, so voucher recipients need to contact more than one nonprofit organization to actually get housed. San Francisco says the various groups working on getting units rented are in constant contact, and that voucher holders can get help looking for an apartment the same week they get issued a voucher. I wanted to know how the San Diego Housing Commission minimized the number of organizations a person has to get in touch with in this process. So it isn't a new practice. Like I said, Housing Commission has been serving populations that are experiencing homelessness at risk for a very long time. We have a Housing First San Diego Homelessness Action Plan that we established in 2014, where we prioritized reducing the rates of homelessness and connecting individuals with housing resources. So we've been experienced in working with these populations and community partnerships and service providers for quite some time. And I would say, too, just being a provider in the community, the the San Diego community, I think, has done a really good job of working collaboratively across providers. So if there is a resource or service that a particular provider has that is what they excel at, we don't actually have to transfer an individual to that agency to be able to tap into the resource to gain knowledge from each other. So we really work together to try to learn from each other, which means fewer handoffs. If a handoff is needed, it's we have a standing practice of warm handoffs. So we don't just send them to another building to go get services. We accompany them, we stay with them till the transition is complete. And in some cases, we continue to both work with them for a short period of time so that we can make sure that there hasn't been a break in care. How do you institutionalize that? I mean, it sounds great that that's how it works in San Diego, but is there something structural that has to happen for things to work that way? I think there has to be a lot of collaboration and developments of partnerships within your local community And so there's a lot of collaboration. There's ongoing meetings on a weekly and monthly basis where industry providers come together collectively to talk about resources that are available, how to eliminate or reduce barriers, and really working on the coordinated entry system and how we can, from a community standpoint, serve these individuals and households that really need the assistance, especially those that are experiencing homelessness. I think in San Diego, you will also find that it is a priority And we have a homelessness action plan, like a 10-year plan where we have prioritized reducing or eliminating homelessness for different populations. So it's really a plan that is driven by the entire community. Everybody's putting in their resources and working together. We also have what's called like a housing resource center, a homelessness resource center, where it is a physical building. It is in downtown San Diego, where we have really high rates of people who are unhoused, so it's really easy to access. And it serves as a resource starting point where we have service providers, we have the housing commission, we even have the local VA healthcare system there. And we are working to connect anybody who walks in 
typically somebody who's unhoused, and we connect them based on their needs and their, their vulnerabilities with the appropriate resources, be it a shelter, a service provider, a permanent housing voucher. And so it really works as a compass to really direct and connect them with the appropriate resources that are needed. So there's a warm handoff, there's a person greeting them in, you know, in person, and really just providing with a community-wide approach as far as where they can access the assistance that they need. Yeah, and I would really just echo about the community development of our standards. The community creates the standards together with the coordination of the COC. City and county and the providers are all at the table in designing these things, and that's how we end up with systems that work for all parties. San Francisco's Housing Authority and the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing say they developed a new and very close partnership to handle the emergency housing vouchers. After a quick break, we'll talk about some of the other methods San Diego used to get landlords to agree to rent to someone with a history of homelessness or credit issues, and how they stretched the value of these vouchers as far as they would go. What it does is it allows us to increase the voucher value where the rents are typically higher. We'll explain after a break. But before that, we're trying out new ways to get your input on the topics Fixing Our City tackles every week. We know you have thoughts, and we'd like to hear them, literally. What's your out-of-the-box idea for getting voucher holders into housing as fast as possible? Record a voice memo and email it to sfnext at sfchronicle.com. Or you can shoot us a note if you need instructions for this. Or leave us a voicemail, 415-777-6156. We'll play the highlights next week. There is a limit to how much rent a housing voucher will cover. HUD establishes fair market rents based mostly on information from the American Communities Survey, or ACS, which is a detailed questionnaire sent out by the Census Bureau to a small selection of households. Of course, housing costs vary by location. In San Diego, they don't just have one limit for the whole city. The limit varies by zip code. And Asusena Valladolid and Glenn Hilton say this is helping a lot with getting people housed. So we, as in the city of San Diego, we have called the payment standard, which is the maximum amount that a housing authority can pay on a voucher, you know, excluding the, the tenant share rent. But we base it on the community or the zip code that the resident is moving into. There are a few jurisdictions across the nation that have what's called like a small area fair market rent, where there's a fair market rent that's based on a zip code versus like a city or county wide amount. And I think that's what you see like in San Francisco, right? There's one fair market rent for that entire area. What we're able to do is we are able to establish a payment standard or a voucher value that's based on the neighborhood versus the city or the entire county. And so what it does is it allows us to increase the voucher value where the rents are typically higher. You'll find that the amount that the housing authority pays is also higher, right? So we're able to allow people a greater access to live in areas where there's low poverty, there's greater access to education and employment and you know transit, and they can afford to more easily move into those areas. So I think that's also been very helpful in ensuring that our EHV households have a voucher with a value that can correspond to the neighborhood that they're choosing to live in. And HUD has also allowed 
housing authorities to seek an exception, allowing the EHB program to have a higher payment standard, so up to 120% of the your Section 8 vouchers. And so we instituted that immediately once it was made public. And I would add that the, the payment standards are a big factor in the success that we experienced with the EHVs. The, in particular, what we're seeing is within the city, the lower rent areas, we're seeing fewer and fewer units online. We've got single room occupancy buildings refurbishing or closing and going offline as affordable housing. As a result, we're losing the number of units available in those really low income areas. And the only way we're going to have enough units to house everybody is if we're looking beyond those areas in every community. It is also a better way to engage those individuals in the community and actually help them to be able to move beyond the the need for assistance at some point in many cases. Any individual that lives in San Diego should have the ability to live in a community that they feel connected to. Many of the people who are looking for housing were not displaced in those parts of town that all of the available cheapest housing is available in. And so they want to stay connected to their community, which is their best pathway to being strong and stable. And if you connect them and allow them a pathway to live in an, in an area where they choose, the likelihood of them remaining stably housed is higher. If they are connected to a rental housing unit that is in a community resource rich area, they'll also have ongoing supports that they may need during their tenancy. How long are the leases that tenants are entering with these vouchers? And and how is San Diego securing their futures up to and beyond that in this housing that they've now found through the voucher system? So with the EHBs, there was added flexibilities in all of the administrative regulations that HUD provides. There's a lot more flexibility because the purpose was to quickly identify households and then quickly determine them eligible so you can quickly lease them up. So one of the flexibilities that HUD allowed was to not require a minimum term for the lease, right? So we do have very few, but we do have a very few number of EHV households who are on a month-to-month lease, but they are the majority of the program participants are usually on a minimum of a six-month, but typically a one-year lease term. And the month-to-month was really just something that we allowed and, and activated with HUD support because we did have some brand new landlords who had never had any exposure to the voucher program, right? You have this government contract that we're asking them to sign. We're asking them to lease to a household that may have some credit challenges or, you know, uh, rental history challenges because of the symptoms of homelessness. So they, they were a little bit hesitant at first to rent to our clients, but allowing the month to month and then layering it with a lot of financial incentives, staffing support resources, and even a contingency like a pot of funds that we, you know, provide that if the tenant does leave unpaid rent or damages that the housing commission can compensate them for up to $7,500. So there was a lot of supports and incentives that we provided to landlords to encourage them to rent to our EHB households. Those incentives for landlords include $500 to agree to take on a tenant with a voucher, the commission covering the security deposit and up to two months' rent for the tenant, and even fees to hold a unit open. 
That could be while the client finishes their eligibility screening or even while the commission and other organizations are still looking for someone. Whatever it takes to get these families moved in is allowable by HUD. Definitely going to help these households out. They need a lot more help than, you know, a traditional Section 8 household. You know, we recognize that and again, wanting to be a solutions oriented program provider. San Francisco also offers landlords similar incentives to sweeten the deal, including cash bonuses for renting to EHV clients and holding units open. The city also emphasizes the benefits of renting to voucher recipients, like that the tenant gets supportive services, that they can contact a housing specialist working with the tenant with questions or concerns, and that they can rely on the federally backed subsidy program for rent. So what advice would San Diego have for San Francisco? In order to duplicate some of these things, there's a lot of flexibilities that housing authorities have that they can enact. I think first and foremost, it's extremely important to establish really strong, ongoing, effective relationships with their local continuum of care and supportive service providers that are helping them with case management and housing search assistance for their EHV clients. I think that's the, the, the first place that I think I would start if I was in another PHA. That's a public housing authority, like the San Francisco Housing Authority or the San Diego Housing Commission, an agency responsible for administering federal low-income housing. HUD also provided funding that was specifically meant for housing placement costs when leasing up or assisting these emergency housing vouchers. So for every voucher that a housing authority received, HUD provided $3,500 in funding to be able to expedite the placement of an EHV household. So I think really looking at what the challenges are within your specific jurisdiction and coming up with incentives that will attract landlords is going to be very crucial. San Francisco had to find about $21 million of its own money to pay for the staff and other expenses that came with administering this program. So for example, when we engage our traditional leasing incentives through our LEAP program, we quickly found that market had changed a little bit during COVID and we needed to include renter's insurance coverage fee and then something that was newer to us, which is a unit holding fee coverage. These two expenses were not part of our typical suite in our LEAP program, but we quickly added them on because A, it was a permissible expense through the HUD you know, housing placement fees. And then two, we realized that it was going to more quickly connect our applicants to a rental unit. So you have to listen to what the market is telling you, identify what the barriers are, and then quickly implement solutions to combat it. There's a lot of HUD flexibilities that are available. PHAs just need to, you know, look at what they need to adopt and sort of bring on those new policies into their program administration. So for other housing authorities, even for a traditional public housing authority, they're not prohibited from establishing these similar programs. And I would encourage them to kind of reach out because HUD does not provide, you know, ongoing funding for supportive services. HUD doesn't provide funding for ongoing housing navigation. So you kind of have to think outside of the box and the resources that you have within your housing authority. You have to be nimble enough to partner with community-based organizations that can help you with that. And, you know, like past, you know, said, there was by allocating and leveraging a voucher, it's also helping the clients that, that they're serving, right? Like they have people who are unhoused and, and they need a permanent solution to you know, address the housing situation. And that's where the housing authority really comes in to partner with them. So it's a two-way street when it comes to helping each other out to sort of end homelessness amongst the people that we serve. 
I do think that the San Diego community, provider community, has a really strong ability to react and to respond, and that we're, we're doing a good job as collectively to really try to figure out where are the gaps and to try to, to address them. You know, we're still certainly struggling with, you know, low vacancy rates. We're still struggling with rising costs of rent and absolutely need more units available to us. But as far as being able to activate the, the funding that was available and get people into units, I think the Housing Commission has, has done a really good job of coordinating that effort. That was Asusena Valadolid, Executive Vice President of Rental Assistance and Workforce Development for the San Diego Housing Commission, and Glenn Hilton, Director of Community Care for PATH in San Diego, which stands for People Assisting the Homeless. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, where we explore how the city will chart its future and address its biggest challenges. Get in touch with us at sfnext at sfchronicle.com or DM us on Twitter. We're at sfnext. I'm Laura Wenis. Next time on Fixing Our City, we'll talk to a prominent sommelier about social justice. Vinny Eng excelled in San Francisco's food and wine scene, but in 2019, he left that behind to advocate for LGBTQ equity, mental health services, and police reform. The former Pride Grand Marshal lays out his vision for a better city next week. Cynthia Lopez produces and reports for Fixing Our City. Gary Baca is our sound engineer. King Kaufman is the executive producer. Jonathan Krim is the SF Next project editor. Fixing Our City is part of the San Francisco Chronicle's SF Next project, exploring how the city will shape its future and tackle its biggest problems. Read stories by our reporters, check out interactive data breakdowns, and find our podcast archive at sfchronicle.com sfnext. If you have a solution you'd like us to cover or you know about a city that's doing something right, get in touch. Shoot an email to sfnext at sfchronicle.com or find us on Twitter at sfnext. <laughs>